0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Good evening, everyone, and good evening to those of you in the Overflow Room. Uh, I'm Anna Sale, the host of the podcast Death, Sex, and Money. I have a bit of a cold this evening, but I'm going to just power through it. Um, and I am thrilled to be here with Ezra Klein, the author of the new bestseller, Why We're Polarized, and the host of The Ezra Klein Show, a Vox podcast where he also is a co-founder. And if you don't listen to The Ezra Klein Show, definitely check it out. It's a wonderful podcast. So my podcast is about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. And in sort of in-depth interviews, we try to get at people's deep personal feelings of ambivalence and moments of uncertainty. Ezra's book is about, in fact, how most of those feelings are uh, driven by systems. (laughs) So, (laughs) so I want to talk to him about what drives our political behavior how that has gotten us to the place where we are quite so polarized and also how you've interacted with those systems on a personal level. And I want to start with the question, yes, we are so polarized. In your view, is that a bad thing?
2: No. Um, The argument of the book is that polarization can be good or it can be bad. The interesting question is not why are we polarized? It was why weren't we for a period? And when I say polarized, part of the reason this conversation gets a little wonky is that um, polarized doesn't mean what we take it to mean in our political conversation. It doesn't mean that we're angry or mad. It just means we're divided. That in this case, the parties are polarized. The parties are different. And what's weird about American politics, not that we're polarized now. It's that we had a period where we weren't. And that's not... What I think is so fascinating about that period, which is like the mid-20th century American politics, is if you think back to it, it wasn't an easy time. You had the civil rights movement, the, the anti-war movement, the women's rights movement, the indigenous people's rights movement, You had political assassinations, urban riots, Kent State. I mean, you had violence in the streets. What was just weird about it was it didn't break down by party. And so something like the Civil Rights Act, which is one of the most divisive conflict-ridden piece of legislation we have ever passed, one of the most important moments of justice, most hard-fought victories ever in American politics. It's a perfectly bipartisan vote. In fact, in the um, Congress, more a higher proportion of Republicans vote for it than Democrats. So what was happening in that period was that we had these big divisions, divisions that were big enough to potentially tear the country apart. They just didn't map onto our politics, and which meant then the parties either in periods of injustice suppress them, and then in periods of progress, compromise their way through them. What has happened since then is a little bit more natural, which is that in part because of the Civil Rights Act and the realignment that followed it, we have moved to where our parties represent and thus amplify our disagreements. And I don't think that's the worst thing. I think sometimes we need to have disagreements. We need to talk about the things we need to talk about. But we also need to somehow resolve them. And the problem of polarization in our system right now is that polarization makes our system Incapable of functioning.
1: And when you say polarized, are the two polls
2: Republican and Democrat? Is that how you see it? Sort of. I think of it almost more as red and blue because a lot of people, they don't really like the side of it they're on, but they're on that side because the other people are unimaginable to them. I mean, you might, for instance, have ever interacted with a Bernie Sanders supporter. They don't love the Democratic Party, but they're not going to vote for the Republicans. And a lot of people in politics are like this. Um, A lot of Donald Trump supporters, they didn't like the Republican Party, but they weren't going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Or they didn't like Donald Trump, but they weren't going to let Hillary Clinton be president. A majority of Donald Trump voters said they were voting more against Hillary Clinton than for Trump. And so I think of these as they're, they're big coalitions. They act in very predictable ways. But it isn't the case that everybody in them feels loyalty to their coalition. But when the parties become this different, the coalitions become this different ideologically, demographically crossing over that chasm becomes a little bit unimaginable. Um, And once that happens, then it's not just that partisanship can hold you in place, but even more powerfully, negative partisanship can hold you in place. And in some ways, I think negative partisanship is more dangerous for a system. Lamar Alexander, um, who was the key vote to not have witnesses uh, in the Senate trial of Donald Trump, very courtly guy, older guy, he's retiring this year, Senate Republican from Tennessee. And he was thought of as a swing vote because he's known for His gentility, his decency, he remembers the way the Senate used to be, wants it to be back. But after he voted against witnesses, he said something that um, I think is very telling. He said, look, the economy's good. Donald Trump's judges are excellent. He's deregulated a bunch of industries. And he had a really bad phone call with Ukraine. And it's just up to you to decide if that bad phone call is worth more. And you should vote for Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders and all the rest of it. And so what he's functionally saying there, in a way... Is that when the divisions are this big, something like asking a foreign country to help you investigate your domestic political opponents, I mean, yeah, it's not great, but you're not going to let it move you to the other side. And when that happens, which is an understandable, almost like I I would even say rational way to treat it, that just means you don't have a system where you can have political accountability if your system requires, as ours does, both parties to participate in political accountability. So I want to talk about the two different parties and how they look right now. Um, One
1: argument you make in the book that I found really interesting is centered around the ways we think about political identity. Um, Talk about the ways the Republican Party is currently and the ways the Democratic Party is currently when it comes to identity and the ways in which how we move through the world and move through the United States um, is predictive in many ways more than it was before as far as how we're aligned
2: so a big part of the book is trying to rescue the idea and term of identity politics from where it's gone which is this idea rescue (laughs) like pull it back Uh um there's this idea that only historically marginalized groups have identities that identity politics is something you see when say african-american voters organize around a political need or claim but like the rest of politics i mean that's just politics um, and so identity then becomes this thing that only weaker or marginalized groups have not something that the dominant groups have. And we cease to see it happen. Um, identity is most powerful when it is invisible. It's most powerful when it is so strong, you can't even notice it occurring. Uh, American identity shapes all of our politics, but we don't day to day, like think about it, question it, etc. Um, something has happened in politics is that the parties used to be very demographically similar. Um, actually I actually have data from the political scientist Lilliana Mason showing that in the 50s, there really wasn't a demographic group, with the exception actually of Southerners, um, because they were so overwhelmingly Democratic, which is interesting um, and important. Um, but there really wasn't, aside from that, a demographic group that was more than 10 percentage points more represented in one party than the other. Really? Yeah. This is
1: 1950, you said? Like
2: 1954, 1956. It's in the 1950s. Um, Now, if you look at those same charts, like the lines go like all the way to the side. And so what's happened is that, for instance, the Democratic Party is about 50 percent non-white and the Republican Party is 90 percent white. The Democratic Party's single largest religious group is religiously unaffiliated. The Republican Party is overwhelmingly Christian. Democratic Party is about 50 percent liberal, self-identified liberal. That's a high point. The Republican Party is 75 percent conservative. The Democratic Party across a bunch of different dimensions is a coalition of a lot of different kinds of groups, um, and even what I was just saying, I think it understates how different the two sides are because a coalition of different um, races or religions is not it can sound symmetrical, not you know heavily non white versus heavily white, but it 's actually not um, Hispanic voters have in that dimension of their identity sometimes different needs than African American voters or Asian voters. Um, appealing to irish catholics in boston which democrats have to do is different than the karmically curious in california which is what happens when they come here (laughs) and so you're dealing with a party that has to build much broader coalitions in the republican party um but aside from that internal difference which is an important difference and the fact that the democratic party has to win center-right voters because of american geography given the senate and the electoral college the other thing that is just important is that the parties just feel more different it is easier for us as human beings used to assessing and intuiting group difference to feel how we are different from people than how our policies differ from others. Policy differences, as somebody who covers policy, we often have to work to understand, um, it's sometimes hard to like work your way through the new fight on taxes and where the capital gains rate should be and so on. Whereas those people aren't like me, something is changing and I don't like it. That's easy. And I will say that something that I find in political reporting. There are so many voters who. When you begin talking to them about politics for a while. It rationalizes through policy.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And then you get a couple levels deeper because things aren't quite adding up. And finally, they'll say and you'll often hear this line, something like it. I just don't like how much everything's changing. And in a very deep way, that's the fundamental difference. The Democratic Party is a coalition of groups for that, either for ideological or demographic reasons, sort of like the way things are changing. They want it to change. I mean, it was literalized in Barack Obama's campaign, hope and change. Um, And the Republican Party is a group that feels that change is threatening. right, we're going to make America great again. And so those um, groups are structured very differently, but what's basically happening is that they sense what the other is in a way that is creating conflict that goes well beyond what you can address through positive-sum policymaking.
1: A few things that I found interesting were, were not that your analysis wasn't just states, you know, mm-hmm. we talk so much about red and blue states or the coastal elites versus the heartland and the way that political journalism sort of talks about who we are as Americans. You point out how many of us live in landslide counties now. And yeah, that's a, a new phenomenon. Yeah. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah. Um, I hope I'll get the numbers um, from this right. But you should all buy the book and look it up in, fast <laughs> in real time. Um, but I think the number is something like. We've gone from one in 20 of us living in an extreme landslide county in 1992. So an extreme landslide county being, again, if I'm remembering this, uh, a county where um, one candidate won by 50 points or more. It's a huge difference to one in four of us or one in five of us. So that's extreme landslide counties. Um, Landslide counties are also a huge increase. I don't remember those numbers off the top of my head. We used to be very geographically dispersed, and and something I show in the book, um, although not it's not me, I'm, I'm in everything, just arbitraging political scientists because mm-hmm. they do good work and I write well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so I've come into a sort of equilibrium with them, um, <laughs> a symbiotic relationship, parasitic relationship. Um, one thing that is a really big divide that we don't always talk enough about is density. And that is both cause and consequence of other divides, in particular psychological divides. Well, Wilkinson has done great work here, um, but it didn't used to tell you. In, and I actually have a chart on this in the book. In the early 20th century, how dense a place was didn't tell you anything about its partisan lean. Nothing. Hmm. Now there is not a city in this country denser than 900 people per square mile, which is not that dense, that votes Republican. Not a place. And so there is this huge divide um, in terms of where we are. And what is particularly destabilizing about that kind of divide, um, I mean, there are other things that are particularly destabilizing about other divides, but this divide is that our politics are set up on place. And in particular, they're set up in ways that made sense at the time and was necessary at the time, but to amplify the power of sparser areas, more sparsely populated areas, small states, sparse counties, etc. So as the parties have divided on that line of density, what it's meant is a political system that it was intended to balance small states and big states, rural areas and, and urban. What it's now doing is it's amplifying the power of one party versus the other. And so you have one party in the Democratic Party that routinely gets more votes. It's won six of the last seven um, presidential elections in terms of the popular vote. And another party, the Republican Party, that routinely wins much more land. Uh, The other day, there was another prayer breakfast today, um, which had a hell of a speech um, from the president. But a couple weeks ago, he had evangelical leaders to the White House and he (laughs) brought out before the... um, conversation he just had on his desk a map of county results and because if you do the county results the whole country looks red Mm -hmm. so he lost the popular vote but if you look at it in terms of like how land voted in america like the old like one acre one vote rule um he won like everything and there's like six blue dots on the map and everybody's like why is this map out here for the um evangelical leaders to come And the question was never answered. It was like just there for emotional supporters. It was the strangest thing. Um, But you do have a situation now where the White House, um, uh, Two. I think it's actually a really remarkable stat that 40 percent of presidential elections since the turn of the millennium have gone to the loser of the popular vote. Um, The Senate is run by the party that lost the popular vote over the past three cycles. When you combine it, the Supreme Court reflects that, of course. Um, The House is under democratic control. But if they had just won the popular house vote by like plus two, it wouldn't be. So uh, uh, we don't just have um, a land-based structure now. It's very much distorting. One party feels it has democratic legitimacy, right, in terms of democracy. And another party feels that it represents the places of the country that are being left behind ignored etc and that kind of thing where the two sides both simultaneously feel that they are the more legitimate side is a particularly uh, combustible form of political polarization. I like that somebody cackled at that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you talk about how our political identities have have, have started to subsume all of our other identities so our ability to even begin to identify with someone who sees the world through the different the the opposite political lens is is diminishing and you talk about cross-cutting identities versus stacked identities um i might get this wrong but cross-cutting identities you define as like having elements of your identity that don't automatically line up with a certain political lens for me, I relate it to that as somebody who grew up in West Virginia, lives in Berkeley, works for a New York media company, spends time in Wyoming. So I'm, I, the way I see the political debate and read the political news is often seeing the blind spots and, and the ch- word choice and who they're trying yeah. to appeal to. Mm-hmm. And it made me wonder for you, as you're writing this book, do you think of yourself as someone who has cross-cutting identities or you, do you think of yourself as someone who's pretty stacked?
2: I'm horrifyingly stacked. it's very it's very no don't clap for that um uh it's very i mean my most powerful cross-cutting identity a lot of people wouldn't see it this way is actually my journalistic identity which i i talk a lot in the book about um at some point being being intentional about which identities you inhabit and when and my journalistic identity is one that i can inhabit and pulls me towards a place of curiosity it often the first question in that identity is not what do i think But first, is what do others think? And that's a good identity for me. But no, I'm, look, I'm a Jewish Californian vegan (laughs) who lives in the Bay Area. Um, I'm a liberal, right? Like it's, it's a, the point of cross cutting versus stack, because I I do want to spend a moment on this, is that. One way we think about politics is that the fundamental divide is over policy. One of the things, and I am a policy reporter, like I care about policy. I wish that there was no reason for me to write this book. Like, really, I do. Um, This book, like, it's like staring into the abyss and having the abyss stare back at you. And to quote Nietzsche, (laughs) Nietzsche, um, who always comes up in politics. Uh, Identity conflict is a separate dimension than policy conflict, and it is often stronger because people are more sure-footed on their identities than they are on a lot of policy issues. People know who they are. They don't always know what the hell politics has begun arguing over that week. Like some weeks in politics, the debate is very esoteric, but the group identities are not. The group identities are very deeply rooted. And so I I show, there's research in the book, um, this again from Liliana Mason actually, Uh, there's research in the book that, one places that have had no actually let me do this differently there's research in the book showing that if you look at democrats whose policy positions should make them republicans or republicans whose policy positions should make them democrats that does that actual fundamental substantive agreement does only half as much to restrain hostility to the other party as democrats whose identity groups lean republican republicans who i whose identity groups lean democrat so if you are you live in the south and um you're a democrat but you're a white evangelical southern man over 65. what that's going to do is you may be democrat for all kinds of reasons but you like you get the republicans right they're speaking in some ways to you you're the kind of voter who might swing um whereas if you're A liberal, vegan, Californian, in the Bay Area, et cetera. It's a bigger divide intuitively. Um, And I'll just give one more uh, stat here. Countries with the most cross-cutting identities internationally, because they've done research on this, are 12 times less likely to have a civil war than countries with the most stacked identities. So just sit with that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it made me think about someone who thinks of myself as having cross-cutting identities. Um, It made me think about the sort of privilege of being able to move through the United Mm -hmm. States and and being seen as being able to have cross-cutting identities, particularly in this moment. Um, And you you cite statistics that show that people with more cross-cutting identities tend to be more open to hearing differing opinions. Mm -hmm. And... And it made me sort of pause and think like, oh, is this because I can pass that I can like listen more openly because my identity is not, I don't feel personally threatened in the same way as someone say, I was talking to a friend who immigrated as a kid to the U S and she talked about how her entire life, she's been so proud to be an American and has been just so proud to have the opportunities here in the last few years her whole sort of political calculus of where she fits has shifted because she feels like the very fact of her being an immigrant is is the defining quality.
2: Yeah. So identities activate under threat. So that's one thing that I do think is important to, to know about them, that the easiest way to to activate an identity is to threaten it. Uh, my father is an immigrant. Um, he came here in the 70s. And I don't move through the world thinking about that very much until the moment I start hearing anti-immigrant rhetoric. And then it activates very powerfully Um, being Jewish is an important identity to me. But minute to minute, it's not that present until I look at Twitter and there are the parentheses around my name. Right. And so the more people feel threatened, the more that political rhetoric threatens them, the more that substantive policy threatens them the more that they're just seeing clips and media and headlines that either that that upset them, that threaten them, the more they're seeing the parts of the other side that are in tension with them, the stronger those threatened identities become. And as you say... Often some of us have a choice in that. I talk in the book about people who do right the tendency of some of us to just get into political entertainment and just sit in there like like bathing in the worst of the other side to the extent that it uh, (laughs) sometimes can mislead us even about what is happening on the other side. And then there are the people who don't get to choose. Right. They're a dreamer here. Right. And that's both a substantive and also an emotional identity that um, they are under genuine real threat. And so one of the things that is happening in politics as these identities stack and then fuse is that, first, threats to one member of the coalition tend to threaten um, emotionally or psychologically more members of the coalition. So, like, white liberals, as the Democratic Party has become much more diverse, have developed a much more racially liberal identity. And in you fact
1: they racially liberal what do you mean
2: um, in terms of just what they think about race if you pu- if you put them on these polls white liberals are now more racially liberal than actually non-white people in the democratic party because for them to be part of the party it has become sorted on that like racial liberalism whereas if you're african-american there, you have a lot of conservative african-americans in the democratic party because the republican party feels hostile to them whereas a white liberal i'm sorry a white person who is more conservative on just issues, as you're saying, can pass into the Republican Party without feeling any of that hostility, right? feels welcomed. And so that issue of what gets activated and how it's being chosen to be activated is important, but also that sense of um, a much larger community is embroiled in every fight is part of like this idea of conflict escalation in politics, that, uh, that sort of a, 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 an attack on one becomes an attack on all. You, I want to talk a little bit more about white identity politics. You spend some time on
1: this in the book. Will you tell us about the the, the study about what happened in the subway platforms with Spanish speakers?
2: Oh, yeah. This is a uh, fascinating study. It's by a Harvard political scientist named Ryan Enos. And what he did uh, was he was trying to test something that had been looked at observationally, but trying to figure it out experimentally. And, and here's the thing he's trying to test. There is a lot of evidence from different kinds of like somewhat thin but interesting lab experiments that if you cue people to think about demographic change, right? If I get people in a room, white people in a room, thinking about how they live in a place that white people are becoming a smaller share of the population, they become a lot more conservative. But he thought, well, I don't know, cueing them that way, like that's not how people experience that by reading an article or something. Maybe that doesn't hold. So what he did is he he was in Cambridge, Massachusetts and he paid Spanish speakers to um, be on the train every day so that over a period of time, people who were riding the train just began hearing more Spanish spoken around them than they normally did. And that gave him this experiment that he could then look at how did the people who were exposed to this change in their opinions on immigration compared to the people who weren't exposed to it. And the answer is they moved sharply right. Um, (laughs) uh, and these are and he makes a point these are people in a very liberal part of the country and they begin um, embracing almost Trump like immigration views just by what is a pretty subtle atmospheric sense that the country around them is changing that there's a higher proportion of um, Hispanic immigrants speaking Spanish in their in their daily life
1: You, you you also in that section quote Harvard political theorist Daniel Allen And she talks about how in any democracy, some people have to give things up. And you quote her as saying that we need to, quote, give each other the space to negotiate around experiences of loss. Yeah. How do you think about that when it comes to the experiences of white people who have lived in predominantly white areas? How do we negotiate around their experience of loss in a just way?
2: I don't think we know how. Um, And I don't think this is something even people are very comfortable talking about. It's one reason I think the immigration debate gets moved over to economics all the time. We're comfortable talking about economics. We're not comfortable talking about this feeling of cultural loss. Um, What Daniel Allen says is that in a democracy to move forward, you're often asking people to give something up. Either give something up that is substantive, like pay higher taxes, or psychological, like accept a more diverse country. And that for them that will be perceived as a sacrifice the problem is in this particular example and i talked about this in the book the term she uses like somebody's gonna be the political loser it's very hard to define who the political loser is
1: and whose losses matter
2: and whose losses matter because it isn't like all of a sudden somebody else became the winner just being able to live somewhere making like one small stride towards equality when you look at say the racial wealth gap and it's bigger than it's ever been so one thing happening in american politics right now is that Nobody is comfortably dominant. So nobody feels like they are the winner. And everybody feels like they are in a very precarious position. Um, and people are feeling loss and threat simultaneously. The Trumpist coalition won with Trump but feels itself shrinking in a profound way. Um, the non-Trump coalition, the blue coalition, lost and feels itself very much under threat. And so this issue of how do you negotiate, say, like white identity threat. Um, white threat in a Browning America, as I talk about it in the book, that's really hard. And one of the hard things about it in particular is that it's one thing. I love the way Danielle Allen talks about this in her book, talking to strangers, but one of the things in her book that, that I do think is tricky when applied to politics is that it's one thing when a group recognizes or is giving something up. It's another thing when that group isn't giving it up, but it's changing anyway, So it's one thing to deal with a sacrifice somebody is making on your behalf, and it's another thing to deal with, not even the end, but just a continuation of a brutal bitter fight. Um, The political coalition that elected Donald Trump isn't sacrificing anything—not willingly. It may be being taken from them, but that's part of what makes it very hard to negotiate these questions in politics. Politics is in a space, particularly given the zero-sum dynamics it encourages, and the particularly like unstable equilibrium of power we're in right now. It's not a space that encourages anyone or even creates space for anybody to talk about feelings of loss or to discuss things in this in a safe way and in fact, even the whole concept of safe spaces has now become weaponized and mocked, and so it's very, very, very hard to know what to do with a conversation that you can't actually have um, in some ways you can imagine a country that is making changes to become more just, right? A country in the alternative universe of HBO's The Watchmen, for instance. Um, canonically, I am Robert Redford's press secretary. Uh, <laughs> this is actually true. If you look at the um, uh, addenda material online. Um, <laughs> which means that in that universe, I helped sell reparations as his press secretary because there were the Redford Parations. What do they call Red reparations. Um that is not the world we live in. That universe seems fascinating. um, And my job seems very interesting and I'm (laughs) proud of the work that I did. But in, in this universe that, that didn't happen. And so this idea that people fighting tooth and nail against demographic change and often fighting that way in ways that don't in any way recognize what the groups they're fighting with have gone through or are still going through versus Um, These groups that are trying to find um, uh, some kind of equality. The issue there is that there's no agreement of who is a loser and who is a winner. There is no sense of sacrifice because nobody is agreeing to sacrifice anything. At some points, things are being taken. But that's different and has a very different set of emotional valences. And this to me is one of the hardest parts of our politics right now. There isn't the capacity to say even stably who is on the rise and who is on the fall. So we can even manage those questions of loss. You know, in trade, um, which is another thing that we're even not good at dealing with, but at least there's this idea that in trade, when you sign these deals, the economy benefits, but you can discreetly people are losers and you can have trade adjustment packages and so on. It's not that way with this. And it just makes it a really hard question to navigate. But one thing I am pushing a little bit in the book, and it's very dangerous territory, is that we at least need to talk honestly that that is what is happening. And that is tough but it is better if you don't talk honestly that this is what is happening then you get things like donald trump who is somebody who more than anything else what he came into the republican primary and said is i'm going to talk about the thing that you are feeling that the others won't talk about you don't like how it's changing and i'm going to say that and that it's bad but he doesn't say it in a good way right he doesn't deal with that and in, 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 so if you don't have these conversations well you will have them poorly so
1: i want to Ask you to talk about what how you think we could have the conversation. Well, I want I want to cite a tweet that you sent out the end of a couple of weeks ago, the end oh of no. January, and you <laughs> and you say, my, my tweets are
2: all off the record. <laughs>
1: Um, You said, this will get me ratioed or whatever, which means I expect to get pushback on Twitter. But a lot of Twitter seems to want to enforce a politics where you only work or ally with people you agree almost totally with. But to get anything done in our system requires working with people you often disagree with. This was that was Ezra's tweet. There was a response to that tweet from Zerlina Maxwell, who's a progressive radio host. And she she quotes your tweet and says, I do not believe that sexism, racism, and transphobia are disagreements. I think that's the disconnect and something you and others might want to marinate on respectfully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's... How do you think we, we can talk about a, 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 a white community's sense of loss because of demographic change when that is also racism? Like, how do we how do we begin to have that conversation?
2: So I'm not telling you first that I know how to create this national conversation. Part of what I'm saying in the book is that we're not set up for it and I don't have a complete (laughs) way to reform us such that we are. Uh, I do think that all of us engaged in politics have to be clear on what our objectives are. And one of the things I've been reflecting on marinating, as you would put it is that you can be doing politics in different ways. And one of the difficulties is when people who are doing different kinds of politics end up in collision with each other, but these different projects are not clear. And so they're pretending they're having the same conversation and they're not your political work can be expressive, right? It can be just about showing who you are. A lot of people who just post things on Facebook, what they're really doing there is just saying, this is who I am. I want you to know, Um, your work can be based on categorizing, right? Uh, you can be trying to say, Here is who my group is. And this is what I think of them in comparison. I think a lot of Twitter politics is actually about that. You're basically building groups and putting them in conflict with others and creating kind of status competition. That's not necessarily a crazy thing to do in politics. Um, I want to say that I say this part of the whole thing value neutral. I just think these are different ways people act. Um, But that kind of group oriented politics, where you're drawing the line brightly, these people over here are sort of irredeemable, it's not a disagreement. It is a distinction in who is inside the political community, who is outside of it. That's in very much conflict with another kind of politics, which is a politics of persuasion. You cannot persuade somebody by telling them they're bad. Like we have mountains of research. If you tell somebody like you start the conversation from like you are contemptible. It's going. It's Doesn't okay. Work. It's okay to do. Um, I really want to be clear because sometimes what you are trying to do is say these people are, should be held in contempt. I feel that way about Nazis. Like I just do like I, what I want, what I want to be true is the social status of Nazis is so low that nobody wants to be a Nazi. (laughs) Then there's also, but if you need to be in a politics of persuasion, which oftentimes you do because you don't have the power to get anything done. If you're not, um, I will say that. I don't think that there is a coalition that can hold power in this country that is as pure as a lot of liberals want it to be, including the coalition they currently have, including the coalition that elected Barack Obama. A lot of people in that coalition held views that are get you canceled. Um, I don't really believe in cancellation for the record. So I, but I joke about it. Um, but a lot of those people hold views that are not uh, considered appropriate by sort of like, liberal leaders. Um, problem is the woke coalition just isn't that big yet and then there is a politics another step forward or not even forward, just another kind of politics that is a politics of compromising coalitions which is what if i can't persuade you but i think there's something we can work together on i did a podcast with a, a really i think amazing woman named leah garces and she's the head of mercy for animals i believe um and Uh, i believe i got the the name right right she's somebody who's devoted she's a vegan activist and has devoted her whole life to saving the lives of animals and um, trying to make their treatment better and something she will say is that she's in many ways failed there are more animals being tortured and killed at this moment in history than ever before um i hope whoever that was did find their iphone (laughs) Um, (laughs) And something she will say is that there are more animals being tortured and killed than ever before. So, in the past couple of years, she's begun building coalitions with chicken farmers. These are the people doing the work that she finds most abhorrent. These are the people who are raising chickens in often very, very difficult and awful circumstances and then slaughtering them for profit. But what she realized and she found was that a lot of them didn't like what big agribusiness had forced them to do. They didn't like the way they had to do it. And that there was a, a space in between where things were now, where they wanted it to be and where she was, where they could agree on just making the lives of chickens better. Couldn't agree on we shouldn't kill chickens, but they could agree on we should make it better. And so that's a Her divide with those farmers is dramatic. It is foundational to her life's work. But to make the lives of the chickens better, she's building those coalitions and doing that work. And so different people are playing politics and doing politics in different ways at different times. Sometimes we all do different versions of these. Um, We're we're all in different versions of this uh, simultaneously. There are times on Twitter when what I'm trying to do is say this position should not be held. It should not be in polite society. There are positions that simply are in polite society. They are held by majorities that I think should not be okay. I don't think, because my intention is to make things better for the people I'm trying to help, um, for hopefully for us all, there are times when I just, even though that's like the position I would like to hold, it is not the position I will hold. Um, I can't decide that I can move forward without trying to persuade them or trying to work with them. And I'm just a journalist. If you're running for president, it's much harder. I mean, that whole thing had to do with um, Bernie Sanders tweeting out Joe Rogan's endorsement. Joe Rogan's a podcast host. He He's a politically complicated guy, but as a, a very politically incorrect comedian, and he said some things that are um, not great. <laughs> and, he's had, and he's also been a forum in his podcast for a lot of people who are very reactionary. And at the same time, he's a complicated guy. He's also been a forum for a lot of people who are very progressive, and he said things that are great and whatever. He has a audience, mostly of white men, the size of Florida. And so he's has an audience of politically disaffected young white men. That's a very valuable political endorsement to have. And a lot of people are very angry at Sanders for trumpeting it because there's no way in which Joe Rogan is pure. And so the question is, was Sanders doing the right thing or not? And my view was that so long as Sanders agenda was actually trying to help people, and I think it is that if you can bring those people into your coalition on terms that are going to make things better, then it is worth bringing them into the coalition. And I understand the political project that says, what you're trying to do is say, these things can never be said. And if they are said you're out, but if they're things, um, but I understand at the same time why Bernie Sanders, what he's trying to do is get Donald Trump out of office so he can protect trans rights. And that if he loses or any Democrat loses in that effort, the situation for trans people is going to get a lot worse. I understand why he's making those compromises. Um, There's a lot of different ways to do politics, but I think it is important not to pretend that there's only one way to do politics and to understand when people are, are in a different project than you are.
0: You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org.
1: Now back to our program. When you showed up in Washington in 2005 after graduating from college with a political science degree, how did you think you were doing politics as a journalist? What did you feel like your objective was? I thought I was period?
2: going to be right about things. And then I was going to tell the people who were wrong about things why I was right. And then <laughs> this part was important though. And then they were going to agree that I was right. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and, on the basis of that newfound agreement that I was right, we were going to move forward as a country. <laughs> um, in retrospect, certain parts of that were naive. huh. <laughs> I would say. And so <laughs> the work, I mean, at a fundamental level as a journalist, I want to understand things, but I want to understand them because I, I don't want to understand them as something I do just want to understand abstractly. Like I think quantum physics is interesting and I don't understand it. Um, but other things I want to understand because I want to find the path forward to making them better. And one level of that is, you know, what would be the best healthcare policy? I spent a lot of time on that question. Then another question is, Given that we know almost any healthcare policy would be better than this one, um, why does nothing happen? That's a different set of questions. And then, having I think come up with reasonable answers to those two, my next question was, why did why doesn't it matter? Why does knowing this have so little political effect? Um, and in some deeper way, right? Even in this era, how did Donald Trump get elected? Like, why is that something that happened? And for all that, I think that I've been moving in recent years away from the belief that politics is an argument and much more towards the belief that politics is relationships. And I don't just mean individual relationships. I do mean that, too, but also coalitional relationships. Um, the fun, the first question people ask in politics before any other is how do they feel about me? And if they can't answer that question positively. They are not going to come along with you. And one of the things I've been seeing is that I think particularly in the social media age where there's a lot more pressure on a politics like an expressive politics, a politics that is rewarded by your group, um, which also tends to push towards the politics of boundary tracing. This is my group. These aren't my group. I talk a lot about this in the book. I think it's becoming harder to carry a torch for coalitional politics. I think it's becoming harder to just argue for the hard work of politics. And I think something I've moved more towards is why I spend more time doing podcasts in which I'm in conversation than I um, do sort of like writing out my own opinions these days. I think that you have like the precondition to polarization. uh, I'm sorry, the precondition to persuasion or coalition is building a space and building a relationship where people feel like they can listen to you without feeling threatened by you. And the moment you make people threatened, you've lost the ability to persuade them. um, And often lost the ability to work with them at all. And it's not to say we don't have to say when things are wrong. I, I just, I struggle with this question. Every time I say clearly what is true in my view about Donald Trump, I turn off people. I would like to be able to speak to. There is a tension in some cases between At one level, like a simple level, just an honesty, right? The thing about whether or not um, media organizations say Donald Trump is lying when he lies is just that tension, right? Do you want to turn off Republican voters at the cost um, in order to say just honestly what is happening? Knowing that you're going to lose their threshold um, participation, whereas maybe if you say Donald Trump is misstating the facts of the matter, they'll keep reading so like, that's like the, like the New York times conundrum there, but at a, um, but like then at a higher level, when you like get into deeper things, do you want to say something is immoral? Do you want to say it's wrong? Do you want to say, I, I did an event with ta Coates and, um, and he was saying, I talk about this in index of racial resentment in the book, but he's like, shouldn't we just call those people racist? And there's this constant back and forth about do you want to soft pedal your language or or not um one of the hard things about a political system like the one we are in where the differences between the sides are so big is that there becomes a sharper and sharper, sharper tension between speaking the truth in the way that one I think oftentimes it is true but then speaking the moral truth in the way that you and people you're allied with see it versus turning off the people that you may need to win over to that moral truth I'm not here to say I' have the answer or that I've figured it out, or that my like equilibrium is the right one, or even the my equilibrium is stable day to day, but just I think it's a tension that we have to spend more time thinking about
1: I want to ask about your experience in in the media because you write a lot about media 's participation in in the polarization machine uh, we are appealing to a polarized public. We also polarize people further as a result of appealing to a polarized public. You write in the introduction, toxic systems compromise good individuals with ease. And it made me wonder if there's been a moment in your journalism career when you can think back in a news meeting or strategic visioning or choosing which headline to go with that you look back and think like, oh, that's me. That's me actually making the world or making our government less functional.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean – I wouldn't have written the book. I mean, I say this very directly in the book at the beginning that I'm inside the system looking out, feeling compromised by it, not outside the system looking in. But I do want to say that in a way, I think it's even harder than that question. When I say bad systems can compromise good people with ease, I, the next sentence in that is that they don't do it by asking us to betray our values. They do it by setting up a choice so that we are val- we are acting in concert okay so that we are acting in concert with our values in a way that makes dimorse that is often the the polar like lamar alexander was a good example of that a minute ago um but you asked for example for me so i shouldn't just hand this over to lamar alexander (laughs) um (laughs) oh that's easier um in the media chapter one of the things i talk about is that in starting a media organization or just being part of a media organization now as you are trying to win over the attention of a very polarized audience that has a lot of other choices that the incentives are all towards turning up the heat, turning up the heat on identity, on opinions. And you can go back and look at all kinds of headlines I've done that even if I think the piece was good, the headlines probably 40% too hot and that would make it go more viral at the cost of turning off people I maybe could have reached. And that was always, it's always a hard choice. And I can think of times when I think I made it in the wrong direction. But in general the hard part is not that I made it in the wrong direction. The hard part is that I made it in the right direction and it's making the system worse. Like that's the hard one. It's not hard if I could see every time clearly when the choice was like do the bad thing or do the good thing, I will choose doing the good thing. Like I I I have enough um you know mostly mostly I will mostly choose doing the good thing. <laughs> the problem is almost never that. The problem is when the choices Doing something that is one version of good versus another version of good. Doing something that is good for Vox versus good for the media. Doing something that is good for me versus better for politics. Doing something that is good for my side versus bad for my persuasive ability. Doing something that is good for one set of values I have, speaking clearly about moral issues in the world, and bad for another one, which is engaging in a small-D democratic process of persuasion. The hard choices are not the ones where you're like, I could be an asshole, but maybe I should not. Um, the hard choices are the ones where what has become individually rational or even individually moral layered up makes politics stop working. I speak with some sympathy for the choice that Mitch McCollum made with Merrick Garland, using an example that is hard for me. I think that he followed his ideological and political and rational incentives in a way that clearly, like, played out. It was an ideologically consequential vote. Um, It would matter tremendously to the things he cared about. It would matter tremendously to who won the next election. These are huge stakes, life and death. He's in. I mean, he's pretty of politicians. McConnell is more cynical than most, but he's not purely cynical. I mean, he wants to do something with his power. That's why he's got it. And and yet, the choice he made. As rational as it is, and as much as I think, I mean, he has said it was his proudest moment telling Barack Obama he will not fill that seat. The choice he made scaled up to both parties over time will destroy the Supreme Court. So the tension there was between what the system needed of him long term and what his ideology, his political movement, his political party, his own beliefs probably about how the country should be governed demanded of him near term. I see why he made the choice he did, but like that's where the choices are hard.
1: Here are a few questions from the audience. Are we
2: heading for a civil
1: war, truth and democracy versus lies and fascism?
2: <laughs> um, I hope not. Uh, if we are, it won't be that clear cut um, to be to, to to try to be nice about it. I don't. I don't think right now there's reason to believe we are moving towards violence. We are a lot less violent politically than we were 50 years ago. A lot less violent than we were 100 years ago unbelievably less violent than we were 150 years ago. Um, Go read uh, Joanne Fields of Blood. Joanne Friedman, thank you. Um, It's a great book. Um, Or go listen to my podcast with her. Great podcast. Uh, But she just, it's just a book tracking violence between members of Congress. Most of it on the floor of Congress during the early years of the Republic. You may have heard, uh, I mean, probably most of you haven't, but there's even a musical about one of them. (laughs) And so, if you prefer musicals to history, you can go. I think it's on Spotify. And so, it's not that bad right now. Our trend is bad, our level isn't that bad, but it's not impossible to imagine how it gets bad. And I do think one of the ways it gets really bad is that the political system cannot resolve disputes politically, so they spill out into extra political means. That's why I worry a lot about the tension between the ability to govern with a popular majority and the ability to block that popular majority from governing now some people say well isn't it better you have that tension so both sides are represented i don't think that's what's happening i think both sides are getting more and more frustrated because nothing can resolve Um, and it tends i don't think our divisions are so deep right now on any we are not facing the kinds of fundamental questions about the country in terms of at least policy issues that we faced at some very very even recent other junctures what we are facing is a huge level of escalation about our values. And I think that if we were able to resolve political conflict and into legislation and into solving people's problems more smoothly, some of the tension would come out of that, actually. I think perversely, the inability to resolve a conflict traps us in that conflict. Like healthcare has been a very combustible part of American politics for for a long time now. If we had passed a universal healthcare system like an actual workable one, like Medicare for all multi-payer, whatever 40 years ago, I don't think it would be as, I don't think we'd have the visions over it. We do today. I think it is a fact that both sides, like the Democrats are almost always winning and the Republicans are almost always losing, but actually no, nobody is winning and nobody is losing. We're just in this like toxic, terrible stalemate. It keeps the stakes very high and makes it impossible for the public to actually just like make a call as he did with medicare itself which is was controversial when it passed and is now beloved like when we can just live in the aftermath of a fight and decide ed hey, do we like the way that changed or do we want to change back we know what to do when we're always in the fight it just means we're always in the fight um and so i worry about a uh, continuing escalation of tensions if we don't fix the system I hope we are not moving towards civil war. I don't see reason to believe we are. This isn't typically what it looks like. Um, But there's 10 or 15 percent of the time when I turn on my Twitter feed and I see Donald Trump talking about enemies of the people and what they're trying to do to your great president and coups. And I think if I wasn't steeped in our mythology and steeped in our national story and I was just this was happening in Britain, I think I'd feel like I knew where that story was going.
1: Another question from the audience. Republicans are able to consolidate their power. Why are Democrats not as effective at it? What are core identities that the Democrats could rally around?
2: Ah, good question. One reason Republicans are able to consolidate power is that their power is amplified through the American political system. This is super important because there is a a misleading assumption of symmetry here. And so a lot of liberals are constantly running this argument of like, why can't they just do what the conservatives do? And the answer is that if they did it, they would lose. And so, for instance, if Democrats got 46 percent of the popular vote in a presidential election, they would not win the White House. They would get electorally completely wiped out. If they won negative three percent of the Senate vote, they would not win the Senate majority. They would get wiped out if they won plus 2% of the House vote. They would not win the majority, they would lose. And so the issue there is that the power of the Republican coalition is amplified by American politics. The Republican coalition is both more homogenous, but it is also filtering through geography in a way that gives it a power it wouldn't otherwise have. I think it is a genuinely interesting question. What would have happened if Democrats had won six of the past seven presidential elections? I think it's a genuinely interesting question. What would have happened if what had happened in 2016 was Donald Trump ran against Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton turned out to be a pretty weak candidate. I mean, did you hear about what she did with emails? And then, (laughs) as as we know, email security is the issue (laughs) that Appalachian voters care about most. And so we say Appalachian. Oh, that's because I'm a coastal liberal. Um, (laughs) I'm being obviously a little glib here, but like you run the election the same way. Donald Trump loses by three million votes. Hillary Clinton wins. That means she's able to govern, possibly able even to fill that Supreme Court seat because there were Republicans saying, OK, fine. But if a Democrat wins, we are going to let them. We're not going to just keep it open forever. And then the Republican Party tears its Trumpist wing apart for having blown a winnable election when the stakes were so high, when Marco Rubio or John Kasich would have won. And so the way in which the distortions of American geography are permitting the Republican Party to run a sort of minority rules politics, as opposed to being disciplined by the ways in which they are not speaking to a majority of the country, is, I think, a very toxic contributor to our politics. One thing that people sort of assume that you need to do if you're talking about polarization is say that it's equal, that the same things are happening. The parties are not responding the same way. The Democratic Party is polarizing. There's no doubt about it. And it's possible it's simply operating on a lag from the Republican Party. And 10 years from now, it will exhibit many more of the same characteristics. Bernie Sanders is, there is no doubt, a left move in the Democratic Party. And if you look at the way his supporters organize and, and partly operate on social media, it has symmetries. Um, not moral ones, but uh, organizational ones. It is moving in a way where the argument is, we will not compromise. Fair enough. If you can win that way, and maybe he can, actually. If you can win that way, it's worth trying. But Bernie Sanders is nevertheless somebody who's been in Congress for 30 years. He was the runner-up in 2016 and he built a bigger coalition after it. He's had again, and part of the whole Bernie Sanders theory is that he can appeal to center right voters in Wisconsin who can be pulled over into a different identity, an identity of as exploited worker, as opposed to sort of like put upon coast I'm sorry, put upon heartland voter. So there's even there a theory of how you can win voters that Democrats don't normally talk to. The Democratic Party has to do this constant coalitional math the Republican Party simply isn't worrying about right now. So is it and about like, that organizing it around
1: value? Is it if it's not identity in the Democratic Party, is it is there common language or oh, I, I think it
2: is at least partially identity. Um, I'm not a political consultant, so the truth is I don't I don't know how to win in these elections.
1: I'm not asking about winning. I'm more just like when you look at the, the ways in which the parties have sorted and polarized. What are the common variables? You've talked about how the Democrats are, you know, there's a bigger share who don't believe in God. They live in more dense places. Are there values, is there language around which there is an ability to to build a coalition?
2: Yes. In general, the Democratic Party does very well with a language of equality that runs through both its economic values and its social values. And not only that, I would say a language the Democratic Party has lost – is a language of true democracy which they have thinned out to be a kind of procedural political democracy it would be better if gerrymandering didn't happen true absolutely true but have lost a language of economic democracy that in order to participate in both politics and our economy and just to live a free life you need a certain amount of economic power too and i think that democrats speak too often in just terms of redistribution as opposed to um a kind of richer understanding of democratic equality, uh, but one of the things that is bad about um, everybody in politics, like almost literally everybody, is that everybody believes very few people will say to you, What I think is right is just unpopular, and so either we should like make the unpopular argument and lose or we should make an argument I think is not right and try and win. Almost everybody, someone including me, thinks their particular, like, substantive preferred opinions are also great politics. And just, like, if, like, everybody would let them write the speeches, you'd win. And so I just, I think it's very hard to know what will move voters. It really depends on who comes out and why. And so in terms of building building values, I mean, everybody has their set of values they think politics should be built on. But in terms of how to motivate an electorate, very few people are good at predicting that in a true way. Very, very, very few people. Um, So many books and op-eds are written about why what I think is substantively right is also politically right. Almost none of those people have a good political prognostication track record.
1: I want to get you to talk a bit about some of the antidotes that you sort of begrudgingly put at the end of your book. Like a hostage note. (laughs) You you really didn't want to do it. Um, This is a question from the audience. It's been a devastating week for Democrats. I felt ready to disengage from my own sanity and mental health. What advice would you give someone like me? Mm. Um, Would you talk a bit about what you write about the politics of place?
2: Yeah. Um, I do have a set of systemic structural ideas but let's put those two aside for a minute my advice to that person is disengage like really don't sit here driving yourself crazy this week if you're not doing anything about it if all you're doing is following the omni shambles of the iowa caucus on twitter don't like we're gonna find out who won in the delegates like you don't need to like go on the emotional rollercoaster that's my problem <laughs> like but i get paid like probably you don't so don't do it like Madeline Miller's *Circe* is a wonderful book. Like, if you're just doing this for entertainment, do something entertaining. Um, you don't need to follow like every up and down. And so, one thing I do tell people is that a lot of people have gotten caught on an emotional roller coaster of national politics, far beyond where they're actually doing any good by knowing more about it. Like this person who wrote this question, I get the sense is not a swing voter actually, and so. <laughs> in, I might be stereotyping. Um, So in terms of what's going to happen between here and there, like adding on to like, yeah, Trump is bad. His speech today, we covered it at Vox. It was bananas. It was a banana speech to give it a prayer breakfast, but it's not gonna The fact that it was at a prayer breakfast, I know. It's so wild. And then, oh my God, sorry, I'm not going to do this. No, I'm just going to do it for a minute because it's emotionally satisfying. (laughs) Then there was this whole thing with Nancy Pelosi where she said she prays for the president and quoted some scripture. And then Donald Trump Jr. said, the Antichrist doesn't quote scripture. But actually, literally, in the Bible, what the Antichrist does is he quotes scripture. And so, like, the whole thing was just such a wild, like, pile up of, it's not good. Um... And just by doing that, right? Like, I mean, what, what does it matter, right? Like, why did I tell you all about it? It didn't help. Um, anyway, my argument on this is that if you're basically 100% of your news is national political news and just national and international news in general, root more locally. Like, build, rebuild a state and local political identity for a bunch of reasons. One, our political system is supposed to work that way. Two, actually working on things that you can change in your community is a much more nourishing and positive kind of politics than, um, thank you. Then, uh, I'm a national political journalist, so this is hundred percent do as I say. Um, <laughs> but I've, you know, hope I can influence national politics. Um, but people, are getting caught in national politics they can't change and ignoring local politics they can and also local politics in important ways complicates national politics you know what'll make you not think progressives are great getting super involved in san francisco politics Um, (laughs) it will it will very rapidly shatter a lot of the symbolic progressive language when it turns out the progressives believe deeply in equality but just like absolutely nobody can live here who doesn't (laughs) have 1.5 million dollars and so like getting involved in local politics where people will meet with you where you do have more power where your state rep your city council person they will sit down and have coffee with you where you can um connect with other people both like you and unlike you to change something and where it can and then even if you do want to be involved in national politics what the national political people want is people who know how to do local organizing they actually don't need more people on twitter they have enough people on twitter and so like rebuilding consciously your state and local news diet. So subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle, subscribe to the LA Times, subscribe like read um uh SF Curbed. Uh like these things really matter. There's a tremendous amount of money and know-how and expertise and knowledge going in to constantly reinforcing your national and strengthening your national political identities. Vox is part of that. Um and you should read Vox and subscribe to our podcasts. <laughs> but Not a hundred percent of the time, not such that local organizations wither and die, not such that the only political identity you have is based on the national divisions. And you don't even know what the local divisions are anymore. Like if that's happened to you, fine. Like you can follow politics as entertainment, but no, that's what you're doing. You're not doing politics. You're consuming politics and consuming. Like I can tell you, it's actually not a fun form of consumption. There are moments, but as this person said, she's been falling all week or he's been falling all week and it sucked. And you know what? You don't have to. And I heard you
1: recently say that after the 2020 election, you may leave covering politics for a while. And I thought about that reading this book. I thought, I'm not sure he's enjoying this. But <laughs> um, the cover design, did it make Well, you <laughs> it, it did make me wonder, like, how do you feel?
2: Um, I am, I said this, this came from my podcast with Jill Laporte, and I have been thinking about this, whether or not, not whether or not I will continue covering things that are understood as policy, um, in the sense of covering climate change and covering economic inequality, but covering Washington politics campaigns weighing in when there's something happening in election, when Donald Trump did a thing, you know, maybe after 2020, that is hopefully not going to be as big a part of the political reporting job, but it could be. I've covered, At the election, I've covered politics for exactly half of my life. Um, I started my political blog when I was 18, and I'll be 36. And the actual reason I think about doing something else for a while is in part just so I don't get trapped in what I already know. I mean, yes, it's true. I don't enjoy it at the moment very much. It's not enjoyable. And in some cases, I don't really think covering politics should be enjoyable. I will make my enemies in my profession on this, but the kind of political journalists I have the most Difficulty with is not the kind that I disagree with. It's a kind that I'll see on the eve of a big election. and i be like, isn't this great? And I was like, no, <laughs> um, like the stakes are too high for this to be fun. Uh, so I don't find that stuff fun. Um, I find it interesting sometimes, but elections and like, it's, you know, it's the stakes are real. It's not sports. And, um, but it, within my own work, i think this book is true right now um at some point it won't be uh i've actually thought about what i should have done instead of a solutions chapter is like different ways this book could become untrue like i don't think we're going to solve my argument against solutions not that i don't have solutions it's that they're not going to pass so it's just like me doing fantasy political football um but things will change they will change and in some ways this book is a refutation of a dominant political understanding that held when i came into political journalism which is the people who ran political um news organizations who had columns sometimes in many cases this is still true but less so than it was all their politics were baselined into the 80s basically like there was like a macro on everybody's keyboard that was that was you remember when tip o'neill and ronald reagan drank a bunch of whiskey and solved social security (laughs) And it's like, everything is just like, why can't we go back to that? And this book in many ways is an effort to say, we can't go back to that because it changed. It's not the same political system. It was, we can't have that understanding. My fear as a journalist is being that person who can't see that it changed, who like convince themselves of their model. Cause that model was true. And can't see that that model is no longer true so for me i if i don't know what i will do after 2020 it will depend on what happens probably in 2020 um but one of the reasons i think about um leaving politics in some ways i feel like i've said in this book like this is what i think is true about politics but i'm now very convinced of it and i'm not sure it's actually a great place to cover politics from and then separately i just don't know what kind of life it will be to just spend my whole like the rest of my days Saying to everybody who is ever excited About the prospect of political change That the Senate is going to crush your hopes
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I think it is true And I think it's important as a political journalist To say true things But it gets it, it, it's, it's a wearing prospect <laughs> I don't like being that guy
1: We're going to leave it there <laughs> <laughs> Ezra Klein everyone